0: Matthew chapter 12, beginning in verse 33, Jesus says these words, either make the tree good, or its fruit good, or else make the tree bad, and its fruit bad. For a tree is known by its fruit, brood of vipers. How can you, being evil, speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks, a man A good man, out of the good treasure of his heart, brings forth good things. And an evil man, out of the evil treasure, brings forth evil things. But I say to you, that for every idle word men may speak, they will give an account of it in the day of judgment. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you'll be condemned. In the 12th chapter of Matthew, Jesus repeatedly defends himself against the accusations of the religious leaders. In the opening chapter, Jesus heals a man with a withered hand. And then later, Jesus heals a man with a demonized heart. The religious leaders suggest that Christ's power comes from demonic spirits, from Satan himself. And as you can imagine, these are painful words. These are cutting words. These are damaging words. These are untrue words. We know that words against Christ can be forgiven upon repentance in verse 32. Where it says, anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him. Either in this age or in the age to come. But you would be making a serious mistake if you thought that the words that are spoken are not injurious or that God doesn't care or words against Jesus don't matter because they do. Words against Jesus hurt him, as Saul's words did in Acts chapter 9, verse 4. You'll remember that the Lord himself appears to Saul and says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? The implication being that this is not something good, that this is something bad. Someone asked me the question How do you undo bad words? Hurtful words, terrible words. And I'm going to suggest to you that you can't undo them. All you can do is replace them with different words. Even though Saul's words hurt Jesus, Saul will enter into a right relationship with God in Christ and then his words are going to change. His heart is going to change and his words are going to change. Jesus is going to speak about the human heart and human words. What we say reveals things about ourselves. What we say with our mouths reveals something about who we are in the core of our being. Jesus holds the religious leaders responsible for what they've said about him. That might come as a shock and as a surprise to you. Just like Jesus will hold them responsible, he also indicates that he will hold us responsible we begin to realize that the words we speak to the people that we love and the words that we speak to the people that we don't necessarily love all make a difference. What we say privately and publicly matter. And again, for the person who has made the suggestion, and maybe you yourself at some point simply said, they're just words. They don't really matter. Jesus disagrees with you. Jesus thinks that words matter. There are words of blasphemy that can be forgiven. There is apparently another kind of speech that can be made that cannot be forgiven in verses 31 through 32. So it would appear that words matter, that words either cause us to confess Christ or deny Christ in verse 33. Our words expose our hearts in verse 34 and 35. Our words are things that we're accountable for in verse 36. Our words determine our destiny in verse 37. Years and years ago, CBS released a tragic story of singer and songwriter Karen Carpenter Some of you are old enough to remember, but most of you aren't. Karen Carpenter and Richard Carpenter were very well-known singers in the 1960s and 70s. And Karen died unexpectedly of heart failure at the age of 32. Brought on by years of self-abuse from an eating disorder. But what brought on Karen's fatal obsession with weight control? It would appear that a reviewer once called her Richard's chubby sister. But Karen never forgot those words. Those words began to haunt her. She would think about those words. And then she began to live by those words. And then those words began to control her life. And then those words became her life. And then she allowed those words to take her life. So for the person who says they're just words, they don't always understand the terrible consequences that words can have. Augustine called words those precious cups of meaning. It is true that the meaning of words are subject to change. It's true that at different times and in different circumstances, we may not all understand and use words exactly the same way. In 1675, there was a very famous architect, Sir Christopher Wren who laid the first stone, which was going to become his masterpiece creation. It was called St. Paul's Cathedral in London. And for 35 years, he labored on this massive project. And in 1710, he presented it to his sovereign Queen Anne. England's monarch pronounced the cathedral, her words, artificial, amusing, awful, And Sir Christopher Wren was ecstatic and delighted. Because you see, in 1710, the word artificial meant artful. And amusing meant amazing. And awful meant something that generated awe, something that was awe-inspiring. Can you imagine if CNN or Fox News calls the presidential candidates artificial, amusing, awful? See, we laugh. But words matter. And so Jesus will begin with a parable of the human heart. In verse 33, Jesus says, Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or else make the tree bad and the fruit bad. For a tree is known by its fruit. So Jesus will begin the discussion with a little bit of a talk about poisonous plants and poisonous serpents. As he's doing this, he he invites you to examine the fruit tree. Either make the tree good or the tree bad. Again, think about the context of what you're reading. The Pharisees have accused Jesus of being energized by demons, perhaps even the chief demon. In Ma- Matthew chapter 7, Jesus spoke of false prophets who come in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they're ravenous wolves. And in chapter 7 of Matthew's gospel, in verse 15, Jesus said, You will know them by their fruits. And even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree, bad fruit, in verses 16 and 17 of chapter 7. So Jesus is going to state the obvious, and he's going to draw an illustration that would have been common to every single person. Now remember what a parable is. A parable is an earthly story that illustrates a heavenly truth. So here, the human life is likened to a tree. Just like it says in Psalm chapter 1, verse 3, that he shall be like a tree uh, planted by rivers of water that brings forth fruit in its season. So what does Jesus mean? Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or else make the tree bad and its fruit bad. When Jesus spoke these words, horticulture and culture that means the cultivation of trees, had been in existence already for thousands and thousands of years. In Babylon, in Egypt, and in the Middle East, in Greece, and in Italy, people would cultivate fruit trees. And the way that they would cultivate the fruit tree is that they would take the most desirable fruit and then they would replant it. So they would try to work hard at making trees and its fruit desirable and plentiful. If you're working hard to make a fruit tree desirable and plentiful, you want to get rid of the trees where the fruit is undesirable or where the fruit is not plentiful. And so that's part of the point that Jesus is making. He says, when you're cultivating a tree, you keep the good tree. And if the tree is defective, you get rid of the defective tree. The religious leaders should have been able to admit that healing the paralyzed man earlier in the chapter, healing the demonized man in the middle of the chapter, these aren't bad things. These are good things. Jesus is doing what is good. The religious leaders accuse Jesus of doing Evil. So once again, Jesus is pointing out their inconsistency. He's asking them to acknowledge, which is a well known fact, the quality of the fruit is going to reflect the quality of the tree. And so once again, Jesus is inviting everyone listening to consider the fruit of the ministry of Jesus. Jesus has healed the sick. Jesus has raised the dead. Jesus has released the captive. Jesus has driven out the demons. And so he's basically asking, how could you not understand this? How is it possible that a corrupt tree could produce such marvelous fruit? It's not possible. So why do the religious leaders persist in their irrational position? And Jesus is going to give us the answer in verse 34. Because there are people with an evil heart. Look what Jesus says in verse 34. You brood of vipers. And he doesn't mean the car. He means the snaky kind. How can you being evil speak good things. The religious leaders aren't just poisonous trees producing poisonous fruit. Now Jesus is going to mix his metaphors. He refers to them as a brood of vipers, a snake pit. He actually calls them a collection of snakes. And the statement of Jesus is both an accusation and an observation why? Because in Jeremiah chapter seventeen, verse nine, remember what Jeremiah has already told the people: the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Psalm fifty-one, five. David wrote, "Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in my in sin in, I, my mother conceived me." In Romans three twenty-three, Paul writes, "For all have sinned and have fallen short of the glory of God." There's none righteous. Jesus knows what you already know. That is that the solution for a bad heart is the necessity of a new heart. In order to get rid of the bad heart, you're going to have to come up with a whole brand new heart. Vipers were dangerous and deceptive. In what way? Think about it. They're venom poisonous. Their appearance, they easily blend into the scenery. You'll remember from reading in the book of Acts that Paul was along with some Romans shipwrecked on the island of Malta. There was a huge storm. It was raining and the the, the waves were crashing down on the shore and the people of Malta in their kindness built a bonfire and as they're building the bonfire Paul brings a stack of woods and he reaches his hand into the wood pile and there is a viper that is, is affixed to his hand and he shakes it off into the fire and the people in the in Malta are going he escaped the sea. This man must be a murderer. He didn't experience justice by the sea, but he's going to experience justice now. And so they literally waited for him to, to blow up from the venom and just die right before their eyes. But God saved him. And when God saved him, the people of Malta looked once again and they declared that he was a god. That there was something incredible about his life and that he should be heeded. It's interesting to me, we sometimes stick our hands into the woodpile of truth and unexpectedly we find a snake fastened to our circumstances for the journey. So Jesus is making a powerful statement. The powerful statement, of course, is how can wicked people say good things? And you might think that he's being unkind, or unfair, and you would be wrong. Remember, the religious leaders have accused Jesus of being in league with the devil, but all of the evidence seems to indicate that it's the religious leaders who are being controlled, who are being manipulated, who are being deceived, that it's the religious leaders who are determined to undermine the plan of God and the message of God and the ministry of Jesus. But it all points to a reality that each and every one of us should step into just for a moment and ask ourselves that very fair question. How is it possible for us to ever say anything that's good? How do we speak the truth and how do we do it in love? Particularly when we've grown up In a world where people say such unkind things in in the hopes that it won't affect us. Can you imagine growing up in a world where your parents get a divorce and you never see your father until the age of 12? And the one day that you do see your father, these are the words that he says How long am I going to have to pay for a mistake that I made 12 years ago? Let me ask you a question. Do you think that has an effect on a child? Do you think that those words that are spoken will begin to shape inform the child's outlook? We recognize that apart from God's moral goodness, apart from the word of God, apart from the fellowship of the saints, we are capable of the most unkind speech. We're on safe ground when we conclude that each of us is capable of the worst sort of behavior that will eventually and could potentially break a person's world to pieces. There's no environment more vicious. There's no environment more hostile than the human heart and its capacity to promote evil. Alexander White, in a famous sermon, quotes John Bunyan and he says, quote, sin and corruption would bubble up out of my heart as naturally as water bubbles up out of a fountain. I thought now that everyone had a better heart than I had, I could have changed hearts with anybody I thought none but the devil himself could equal me for inward wickedness and pollution of mind. I felt therefore at the sight of my own vileness. I fell deeply into despair. I concluded that this condition which I was in could not stand with a life of grace. Sure, thought I, I am forsaken of God. Sure, I am given up in the devil and To a reprobate mind, unquote. This is from one of the great preachers of his time. But he got a tiny glimpse inside of his own heart. And he was wondering if things could ever be different. And so Jesus says at the end of the verse, at verse 34, a principle concerning the heart. Look what he says. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. But remember the context again. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Can you imagine a heart that is just simply informed by darkness and wickedness and pain and grief? By the way, out of the abundance of the heart, the word abundance means here, To overflow. It carries with it the idea that whatever in the heart will eventually leak out. It's as if there is something that's driving the content of your heart. And it causes it to spill over in every aspect of your life. A man's words exposes a man's heart. A viper in verse 34. Good heart, evil heart, verse 35. And so Jesus is making that remarkable statement. The remarkable statement is your heart can't contain anything other than what you really are. We live in a culture and a society that's inundated with images and expressions and commercials. There's a commercial that says, hey, what's in your wallet? Jesus asks us the question, What's in your heart? What happens if somebody literally squeezes your heart? And what will the content reveal? Jesus is in effect reminding the religious leaders, what you've said reveals what you are. And I want you to think about it because the most important thing that they've said are things that they've said about him. And the most important things that you could possibly say are not just simply things that you say about God or simply things that you say about Jesus or simply things that you say about things that are good or kind or virtuous. Our words reveal the moral and the spiritual content and condition of our heart. And of course, the heart means the person. When the Bible speaks of out of the abundance of the heart, he's speaking of the human being at the most intrinsic, deepest level. The fruit, the root becomes the fruit. Doing comes from being. Moral decisions determine identity and destiny. Again, if somebody asked me the question. They said, well, what do you do? I mean, typically we think about what we're going to do, but rarely do we think about what we're going to say. And the reality is we have to move our thought processes one step back. We have to understand that what we say will eventually become what we do. And of course, if you preach, the chances are you're going to say something really stupid at some point. And so you have to be careful and thoughtful. Jesus is digging into the very essence of being. No one is good or capable of goodness unless God makes him good. Unless God gives you the capacity for grace and compassion and goodness. In Luke chapter 18, verse 18, in that classic story where a rich young ruler comes to Jesus and he says, Good teacher, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good, Jesus answered No one is good except God alone. This from the words of Jesus. And by the way, either Jesus is God and good or he's not God and not good. Frederick Dale Bruner hits the nail on the head. He says, quote, in context, Jesus is telling the Pharisees why their speech borders on being the unforgivable sin against the spirit. The reason isn't because of insufficient prudence or flawed diplomacy. It's bad being. The Pharisees' slandering of Jesus and his spirit, quote, are not accidents. They correspond to what the adversaries of Jesus are. Evil. The religious leaders are bad to the bone. That's easy for us to admit. What's harder to admit is something far more cruel and difficult. And that's who we are. We're all capable of hurting, damaging, thoughtless, insensitive speech. So, how can we avoid it? Well, according to Jesus, we have to fill our heart with new treasuries. We have to put inside of ourselves something that's different. In verse 35, it says a good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good things. And an evil man out of the evil treasure brings forth evil things. In verse 35, that word treasure is so very, very interesting. Earlier in Matthew's gospel, this is the word that was used to describe The wise men who gave gifts to Jesus, you'll remember that out of their treasure box, they brought gold and frankincense and and myrrh. The word here, good treasure, and the word here, evil treasure, comes from a single Greek word, and most of you are gonna know this word. It's the word thesaurus. You know that word. Those of you who read or write At any point in your life, you have a thesaurus and you open up the thesaurus because it is a treasure book. It's filled with words to help you have the exact right word at exactly the right time. We can only have a good heart by giving our bad heart to the Savior. A good man out of the good treasure of his heart will bring forth good things. How? Because once you've given your heart to God by the power of the Holy Spirit through the Lord Jesus Christ, the Bible offers you a brand new heart. And each and every one of you are going to need it. When our heart changes... We honor God and then we do what's right. Our heart changes and then our words change and then our deeds change. And for some of us, even our countenance changes. You go from this kind of a countenance to this kind of a countenance. I went to uh, El Paso to visit my granddaughter. She just turned 13 it was her birthday yesterday. And uh, it's really interesting to me how how powerful words are. You know, w- when, when you think about saying happy birthday, or you go to a restaurant and you're smiling and you're glowing, and the, 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 the waiter looks at you and says, well, what are you so happy about? And you go, pfft. Ribs, what's not to be happy? You guys serve ribs here every day to a lot of people who are unhappy. And imagine you say something like, well, you know what? I woke up this morning and I couldn't help but thinking, I'm not going to hell. I'm going to heaven. My sins are forgiven. Jesus is the Lord. Grace and mercy are available to me. And they go, never mind. I was just... I thought this was going to be a polite conversation. I didn't know it was going to turn into something like this. But isn't it powerful how words work? I mean, you're at a restaurant, right? And you, the, the waiter comes to you and says, what would you like for dessert? Oh, I couldn't eat another thing. Oh, I couldn't take another bite. Oh, I'm stuffed to the gill. And the waiter goes, the dessert is included in your meal. And then all of a sudden you go, pistachio ice cream red velvet cake chocolate lava isn't it funny how just a simple expression will cause you to change your mind about so much What Jesus is basically telling us that the good treasure of our heart becomes the center of our moral being. Our speech is the test of character. On my radio program, someone said to me, you know, there's no constitutional test. There's no religious test in order to run for the president of the United States. And I said, you're exactly right. There is no religious test, but can't we as American people have a moral test? Isn't there something about a candidate that should reflect honesty and Decency, And by the way, if you wouldn't let them watch your children, you shouldn't vote for them. <laughs> Once again, my grandma comes to the rescue. <clears throat> Granny used to say, Gino, keep, keep your words soft and sweet because you never know when you're going to have to eat them. She was so right. Yes, wisdom is knowing when to speak your mind. But also when to mind your speech. Paul told the Ephesians in Ephesians chapter 4 verse 29. Let no foul or polluting language nor evil word nor unwholesome or worthless talk ever come out of your mouth. The word translated foul is a Greek word sapros, it meant rotten, putrid, polluting. It was the word that was used to describe fruit that had gone so molded that it could no longer be consumed. Paul says, but speak what is good for necessary edification that it may impart grace to the hearer. Paul told the Christians in Ephesus to put away unwholesome speech, to put away vulgarity and lewdness and slander and obscene talk. He was basically reminding them that all of these were expressions of a life that was lived apart from Christ, before Christ. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6 verses 9 through 11, and now all of a sudden we begin to understand the grievous words, the hurtful words, the painful words that Paul spoke against Jesus and against the saints. He could never, ever undo what those hurtful words had done. But God in his grace and his mercy gave him an opportunity for a new heart and a new language and a new way of speaking The Holy Spirit convicts us of unhealthy talk and then gives us words so that we can build up rather than tear down. According to the Bible, speech includes the purposes of sharing. The purposes of sharing good things, of building and strengthening each other, of ministering grace. And when the Bible talks about let your words be filled with grace, (coughs) it means favor. blessings. So our speech becomes sources of comfort and hope. And so in verse 36 he talks about punishment, condemning the heart. He says in verse 36, but I say to you for every idle word men may speak they will give account of it in the day of judgment. The sentence is pregnant with meaning. Every word is important. Every single word in this sentence has unmistakable value. We would do well to spend time on each and every word, but I don't have the ability to do that. But I want to draw your attention to one word in particular that you might not have chosen first. He says, but I say to you. That very simple word, you, is interesting to me because it's singular. He's not talking to the crowds in the plural. He's not even simply talking to the religious leaders. I'm going to suggest to you that just for a moment now, just for a moment, when Jesus says, but I say to you that the crowds have disappeared, The disciples have disappeared. Peter, James, and John are gone. The religious leaders are gone. Even the man who's been healed is gone. All of the darkness is now starting to build up so that there is only a single spotlight on you in the day of judgment. When Jesus says, but I say to you that for every idle word, Men speak. Words fall into several categories. There are words that are helpful, there are words that are harmful, there are are some that are morally useful, there are some that are morally useless. There are conversations that build up, there are conversations that build that tear down. But according to Jesus, according to Jesus, our words, our words are accountable to the Lord and will in fact be judged. So when Jesus says this, he's he's saying something that we should never forget. Number one, he's saying that every single thing that we say has value. And number two, there is such a thing as a day of judgment. According to Jesus, our words, whether we like it or not, are accountable to the Lord. William MacDonald writes, quote, Because the words people have spoken are an accurate gauge of their lives, they will form a suitable basis for condemnation, which is the judicial pronouncement of guilt, or acquittal, which is exoneration. How great will be the condemnation of the Pharisees for the vile and the contemptuous works which they spoke against God's Holy Spirit. Jesus reminds the religious leaders you're going to have to give an, an account. You're going to have to make justification for your words. And the word translated idle is very interesting. There's the re- g- root Greek word ergos, which we get the word energy from. It means animated, lively, almost living. And then there's "a," which is a negative, like we say atheist or agnostic. So ergos means no energy. It can mean, depending on the context, idle, lazy, unemployed, in the sense of not being able to generate what seems like some sort of significant activity. The implication seems to be useless words that accomplish nothing. And now we're back to what we talked about earlier. They're just words. don't really matter. Nobody really cares. And Jesus goes, I care. I care about every single word. And every... And all of its significance. And so the implication is that God judges speech that is weighty, speech that is light, speech that is consequential, speech that is inconsequential. And what we say in unguarded moments reveals who we are. But also it affects our future. Jesus points out that every idle word men speak will one day pass the judgment bar. What seemed like an insignificant slip of the tongue becomes an invitation to judgment. At this point, you should ask a different question. At this point, you should say, why does God judge My words. It's okay to ask that question. It's a fair question and it deserves an answer. According to Jesus, because our words are an accurate gauge of the condition of our heart. That's why. Because God must of necessity evaluate what's going on inside of you. You know, one of a former president's top aides told a nightly news program, when asked the question, the president made certain promises, and he didn't keep them. And the aide said, this president kept every single promise that he meant to keep. <laughs> well, we laugh, don't we? We laugh. Because out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Calculated speech can sometimes become calculated hypocrisy. And every once in a while, we want something more, don't we? We want more from our presidential candidates. We want more from the leaders of our country. We want more from the people in our church. In the movie Contact, written by Carl Sagan... There was this ancient TV broadcast of Hitler's Reich. Which was broadcast into to space. And according to the premise of the movie, what is spoken here on the earth, what is broadcast visually, digitally, um, is cast out into space. And, and so TV broadcasts and radio broadcasts go further and further and further away. And, and according to the premise of, of the movie, Carl Sagan knew that both sound waves and video waves, they never cease, they diminish in intensity, but they go on forever and ever. And according to the premise of the movie, people out in space were listening to what was being said on this planet. And there was a response. I read about a news broadcast in Chicago. There was The people, they came on the television show and then all of a sudden it got really fuzzy and a 1950s program broke in and they started singing, it's howdy doody time, it's howdy doody time, it's howdy doody time. Now for those of you who are absolutely ancient like myself, you have some idea of what I'm talking about. According to this premise the Howdy Doody broadcast went out in space. It hit a rock or a comet or a meteor or something, and it bounced back, and so it traveled out into space, and then it traveled back, and it reinterrupted the broadcast. But it becomes a, a, a reality in, in which the Bible says... That is true. Your words go on and on. Unlike the Energizer Bunny, which which will eventually run out of batteries, according to Jesus, what you've said long after you're dead, long after your body has decomposed in the ground, your words go on forever and ever. And God has some kind of permanent accounting record. It may be linked to digital or audio or, or video. But it exists and it will always exist. So your next question should be, how do we get rid of that film? (laughs) I know you're probably thinking, what's it going to be rated? Who's going to see it? There's only one way to get rid of the film. And that's the Lord Jesus Christ. Look what Jesus says in verse 37. For by your words... You will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. The Lord Jesus has paid the penalty for careless speech on the cross of Calvary. At this point, you guys should have broken into applause. The Lord Jesus has paid the penalty for careless speech. He's also paid the penalty for careful speech. Now Jesus suggests that our very words will serve as the witnesses which will either judge us or condemn us. So what does Jesus mean when he says, for by your words you'll be justified? By the way, the word justified means declared righteous in the sight of God. Remember what Jesus has already told us. Good words are indicative of a good treasure. Words that dismiss Jesus are indicative of an evil heart. I don't think that he's just simply saying whatever you say. He is in specific making reference to what have you said about him? What have you said about his life, about his message, about his ministry? What have you said about him? Here I think Jesus is acknowledging That what Jesus is basically saying is, what I've said is true about myself. Emerson said, a man is what he thinks about all day long. The Roman Emperor Marcus Aurelius put it this way, quote, a man's life is what his thoughts make of it. William James, the famous philosopher, said, the greatest discovery of my generation is that human beings can alter their lives by their attitudes of mind, unquote. In the Bible, we we read, as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. And if you think in your heart, dark things, wicked things, evil things, perverse things, horrific things. Paul the Apostle writes in Romans 10, 9, But if you confess with your mouth that the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness. With the mouth confession is made unto salvation. There's a reason why Jesus cares about our words. Because our words will eventually leak out. You know, it's been estimated that most people speak in one week. As many words as it would take to fill a 500 page book. If you wrote down every single thing that you said from Monday morning till Saturday, till till Sunday night, you could fill a 500 page book. In the average life, that means that's 3,000 volumes or 1,500,000 pages. Which is the same length as the Obamacare Administration's (laughs) health care? Now I want you to just think this through for just a moment. It's a frightening thought that one million five hundred thousand pages justifies or condemns. So how would you characterize your speech? Are they words of truth? The Bible speaks of vain words in Ephesians 5, 6, enticing words, Colossians 2, 4, but it also speaks of wholesome communication in 1 Timothy 6, 3, sound words in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 13. In order to have a good heart, it's going to require a new heart. And that's what the Bible offers. When you come into a right relationship with God in Christ. When you turn from your sin and you turn to the Savior. I read about two boys who were on the playground discussing a classmate. And one of them said, he's no good at sports. And the other said quickly, yes, but he always plays fair the critical one said he isn't very smart in school either and his friend said you know that may be true but he studies hard he makes every effort and then the boy with the mean tongue became exasperated with the attitude of the other well he said have you ever noticed that how ragged his clothes are and the the, the other boy kindly replied yes but have you ever noticed that they're always pressed they're always clean it takes work it takes effort to say something nice instead of something cruel. We can make a difference with our words, gracious words, wholesome words, grace-filled words, but it will happen if you begin to fill your heart with grace, mercy, thanksgiving, and praise. It'll eventually leak out. The words of Jesus are lasting words, living words, inspiring words, gracious words. My granny would always help me when I was in high school with my speech class. I would say, Grandma, how can I end this speech? My favorite ending, granny said, I love a finished speaker Yes, indeed I do. I don't mean one who's polished. I just mean one who's through. Just say the end. Okay. The end. Let's pray. Heavenly Father. Lord, we know that a word fitly spoken is like apples of gold and settings of silver. Lord, we know that words really do matter. Lord, we know that sometimes we say things that just are not kind. And so, Lord, we pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would convict us of those things that are not right. Lord, we pray that you would help us with our speech. Lord, we understand that there are some things that we have said that we can't take away. Lord, we know it's an impossibility to try to make those things right. But like Paul the Apostle who spoke blasphemous things and unkind things and wicked things and hurtful things, that, Lord, you would give us the same privilege that we could now speak words that are gracious, that are kind, that are filled with thanksgiving and blessing and benefits, lasting words, Living words, inspiring words, gracious words. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.